You're listening to Radio Luke Solicit. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode number 30. Well, today's January 1st, 2020, and it's been, from what I checked, it's been, I don't know, I guess, what, about eight months since I did my last podcast. So what is it? You do a podcast once a year, and I, I guess that's good enough, right? <laughs> well, no, actually, it isn't good enough. You know, when I when I started this podcast, several, well, I hate to admit this, but it's been about three years since I started doing this podcast. I had intended to do it once a week. Well, as you can tell, I'm only up to episode number 30. I haven't exactly met that goal. So, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, you start doing things and you want to want to make something good happen and then kind of life gets in the way. And that's sort of what's happened to me here over the past uh, past few years. And I really, you know, this is kind of a dangerous thing to say. I, I don't generally make New Year's resolutions, but I have made a resolution to do better on my podcasting frequency here in 2020. So this is a pretty good day to get started on that, right? It's January the 1st, 2020, kick off a new year and... Lord willing, I, I'd like to be able to do this at least once a week. So I'm saying that on a podcast. That way, see, you can hold me to it. If I start falling off, you can send me you know, send me comments. Hey, Steve, where's your podcast? Uh, in fact, they've already had a few people comment on that, and they've they've asked me to to do additional podcasts. So I'm really kind of gl- I'm glad to be back in the uh, back in the saddle again, so to speak, and to be doing this. And again, Lord willing, I, I hope to be able to do this uh, much more consistently here in 20. 2020, this is an awful lot of interesting things going on. Well, you know, one of the things when you you do a, a sort of end of year, beginning of the year type of a podcast, it's it's always uh, kind of a convenient time to look back on where you've been over the past year and, and maybe make some plans, plans for the new year uh, as well. And, you know, one of the things I was just kind of going back and, and going over some of the um, the things that I've written on my my blog over the last year, and and there's quite a bit of material out there. I I got I don't know it was probably somewhere around sixty posts out, a little bit more than that I think actually. So I was writing at least once a week, and and just kind of looking over the post, I, I guess I would say that they kind of break down into to roughly three major categories. You know, that is. Uh, uh, matters dealing with uh, Christian faith, matters dealing with politics, matters dealing with economics, uh, and maybe a little bit of, of culture thrown in there as well. You know, one of the things that, that I wrote about quite a bit in in 2019 was the Roman Catholic Church. I have to admit, I, I've, I find the subject of the Roman Catholic Church, or the Roman Church State, is, uh, as John Robbins uh, would call it, I, I find that an endlessly fascinating subject. Um, for a couple reasons. Number one, it's it, it it's extremely relevant. It's very relevant. I mean, the the Roman Catholic Church is just constantly in the news. Number one, so I mean, it's it's very influential. Number two is that despite the fact that it's constantly in the news, it's substantially ignored by by Protestants. Uh, there's very little commentary done on the Roman Catholic Church. And maybe I'll even add a, a third reason in there. I said two. Maybe I'll, I'll add a third reason in there. Uh, not only is the Roman Catholic Church in the news and influential, not only is, it substan- is, is that influence substantially ignored by Protestants, uh, but number three, the, the effect of what Rome does is incredibly evil. Uh, and, and of course, that's what we would expect. Now, one of the, the things that I've talked about quite a bit on the blog, and I, I make no bones about saying that, is, is I believe that 
the the Church of Rome is is the Babylonian harlots, Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, as uh, as the Apostle John said in in Revelation. You know, and we saw this this woman who rides the beast. He was amazed. He marveled at her. This is the woman who's drunk with the blood of the saints. And of course, that's that's the Roman church state. And it has an incredibly evil influence on the world. Um, it's it, One of the things I've talked about when it comes to Rome is that uh, the Roman church state is really the original globalists. Uh, they really are the original globalists, these guys. You know, it, it's kind of interesting when you, you know, if you follow, if you consume uh, anything... Uh, you know, any amount of sometimes what's called the alternate press or the 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 independent media, you know, and yeah, you know, and I'm thinking out here about maybe some of the big names, just as an example, you know, somebody like say uh, say uh, Alex Jones, for example, or uh, some of the other independent news site, news sites out there, um, YouTube channels, bloggers, this you know, podcasters, this type of thing. Yeah, you listen to these guys and. You know, they talk quite a bit about globalism. They talk about George Soros, and they talk about, oh, I don't know, you know, the, the Council on Foreign Relations or yeah, other types of uh, of individuals. Maybe they talk about uh, the European Union or the United Nations. And, you know, what they say, you know, the, the warnings that they give about some of these individuals, about some of these organizations, is perfectly legitimate. I mean, th- these are... Uh, are organizations that that I think are are very much opposed to uh, to individual liberty. Uh, I, I think they stand uh, really against the uh, the will of God in, in in many respects. And I'm not going to try to get into all of the, the particulars of that right now. But my my point being is that they uh, a lot of these people in the alternate press will talk a lot about some of these various more secular type organizations, and they're completely ignore the influence of Rome. You know, it's as if, you know, Rome goes around and and does it's it's really remarkable the amount of globalism involved in the Roman Catholic Church. And yet very few people talk about it. And and I discussed it a, a fair amount on my blog over the past year. One of the the ways that that Rome implements globalism is of course by encouraging mass immigration, mass migration, you know, asylum seekers, uh refugees, this type of thing. Uh, they what they want to do. They have a strategy of trying to flood the independent nations of the world with uh, basically welfare migrants. You know, it it's not enough for Rome. You know, sometimes they're they get out there and they try to posit themselves and say, oh, you know, hey, this is, you know, we're just doing this because we care about people. But I mean, what they're really doing is is they're they're flooding countries with migrants, putting them on the dole, and bankrupting those countries. You know they're making them and they're making those societies to a significant degree ungovernable. We have major problems here in the United States with that. We have problems with that going on in uh, in, in Europe as well and many other Western countries. Uh, the Pope toward the end of 2019 was even in Japan. He was lecturing the Japanese and trying to tell them that that they should take on more migrants. And I, I don't think the public sentiment in Japan is is up for uh, for inviting mass quantities of welfare migrants. But that doesn't mean the Pope's not trying, and he's going to try again. He's not going to give up. Um, so really, that that's one of the, the big themes with faith. And that ties in, of course, closely with politics. Um, now you've got this Roman Catholic Church out there attempting to influence politics uh, in a major way. So that was one of the big themes on my blog over the past year, was just talking about 
the Church of Rome and some of the nefarious activities that are carried out uh, by that church and, and by its its antichrist head. And of course, I'm talking about the Pope. You know, and when I when I say the the current Pope uh, is an antichrist, what I'm just what I really mean is that 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 all popes. You know, the entire the office of the papacy is the office of antichrist, and, and all of those popes that occupy that office uh, are are you know in the office of antichrist. So it's not just an individual. Uh, you know, we have what Francis the first right now, Jorge Bergoglio uh, is his name, is doing business as uh, doing business as Francis the first. But I mean, that was also true of his predecessor. Uh, uh, Ratzinger, you know, he was the, uh, what, Benedict Sixteenth, I believe, and then, of course, John Paul II, who was a pope for, goodness, I guess, uh, he was he was pope well over 20 years. I, I can't remember now um, when his, his pontificate ended, um, but, you know, he was maybe even closer to 30 years. I mean, it seemed like he was pope for most of my life, uh, and, of course, he was a, a major global figure throughout that entire period. Uh, but all these guys, all of these popes, and the popes that were before that, you know, they all occupied the office of Antichrist. And, and yet, there's very little discussion about that in uh, in Protestant circles. If you're like me, for example, you've probably never in person, I mean, even if you're, say, if, if you're a conservative Protestant, if you're an, an evangelical, you've probably never in person heard somebody talk about the office of, of the papacy as as the Antichrist. Uh, that used to be very common among Protestants, but uh, toward the end of the 19th century, that that began to uh, to disappear. And in fact, even the Presbyterians wrote that out of the, the Westminster Confession. There was a, a a portion of the Westminster Confession that explicitly identified uh, the Pope as as Antichrist, and yet that was written out. Uh, that 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 uh, little uh, sentence, that clause, was removed from the. Uh, from the uh, the Westminster Confession. Now there are a few, uh, maybe smaller Presbyterian denominations that still retain that language in the Westminster Confession. But most of the big, uh, bigger Presbyterian denominations, the ones that that you've heard of, uh, do not have that. I'm thinking, of course, of the PCUSA, uh, for example, that doesn't even really follow the. They don't even pretend to follow the Westminster Confession. But this is true even of of the uh, say the conservative Presbyterian denominations, for example, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Uh, they have removed that language, and and I think that's also true of a, a good portion of the other uh, more conservative Presbyterian denominations. And that's unfortunate because it's left people confused. That's one of the the things that I write about quite a bit on my blog. Is is again the the Roman Catholic Church. And I, you know, I make that point consistently, uh, and I hit it pretty hard. I don't try to be subtle about it. I mean, the, when you talk about the, the office of the papacy, you're talking about the office of Antichrist. When you're talking about the Roman Church state, the Roman Catholic Church state, what you're talking about is uh, Mystery Babylon the Great. You know, it's the woman who rides the beast. There was that, uh, that title of that, uh, that Dave Hunt book from a, a number of years ago. So we call it The Woman That Rides the Beast. So there's a there's quite a, there's a big theme in my blog, of course, this past year on faith, and I fully expect that to continue here in in the new year. It's kind of interesting um, if you if you actually start looking for it, it, it's amazing how many stories there are about the uh, Roman Church state just in the mainstream media. And there was one. This was uh, well, was, there's a story dated December twenty sixth, twenty nineteen. It was in the Washington Post. And it has a headline. It says, Ousted Cardinal McCarrick, 
this is that uh, chap, that uh, fellow, uh, Theodore McCarrick. He was, uh, what, the Archbishop, uh, I think it was in New York. Um, but this fellow, and I know he was Archbishop of Washington, D.C. Maybe I'm, I'm getting confused exactly which Archbishop he was. But anyway, he was a, a very major figure in the American Catholic Church. And you may recall that that he was removed from removed from office. He was actually defrocked because of all these um, claims of, uh, of uh, uh, sexual improprieties. I think he was was preying on seminary students. I think was the principal charge against him. Anyway, this headline in the Washington Post from December twenty sixth it read: "Ousted Cardinal McCarrick gave more than six hundred thousand dollars to fellow clerics, including two popes." Record show. Uh, and you read through this story, it's very interesting. It says, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick gave hundreds of thousands of dollars in church money to powerful Catholic clerics over nearly two decades, according to financial records obtained by the Washington Post. While the Vatican failed to act on claims, he had sexually harassed young men. Starting in 2001, McCarrick sent checks totaling more than $600,000 to clerics in Rome and elsewhere, including Vatican bureaucrats, papal advisors, and two popes, according to church ledgers, and former church officials. And when, you know when you read through the, this article, it's actually some pretty good reporting. Now you know you may, you know, if you're maybe someone who's a bit of a conservative or a Republican or something like this, you may want to say, "Oh, it's the Washington Post." You know, it's just a Jeff Bezos rag and what have you. Well, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff in the Washington Post, uh, and, and they definitely do have a liberal bias. But one of the things that's it's kind of interesting about some of these mainstream press outlets, such as the Washington Post, is while they definitely do have a liberal bias. They actually do have some pretty bright people that work for them, and they, they're very capable of doing some good reporting. And this is actually a pretty good story here, uh, and it's, it's very detailed. I mean, the the reporter, the, the writer on this, let's see, it's uh, Sean Boberg, Robert O'Hara Jr., and Chico Harlan are the uh, writers credited with this. And I think they do uh, actually a pretty thorough job of uh, of investigative journalism here. This is a, This is a good piece. Um, it talks in here about how McCarrick sent Pope John Paul II $90,000 from 2001 to 2005. Pope Benedict XVI received 291000 most of it in a single check for $250,000 in May 2005, a month after McCarrick was elevated to succeed, or excuse me, the, a month after Benedict XVI was elevated to succeed the, uh, the late John Paul. Uh, one of the things too is is where some of this money came from. Um, the money actually came out of a uh, of a fund. And bear with me just a moment here. I want to. Okay, yeah, here we go. So looking through this story, uh, it, it's a little interesting. It, it, they actually talk about where this money came from. So you know, okay, so where did this? Where did all these uh, the, this roughly six hundred thousand dollars come from? Well, it says according to the story, it says that. Uh, McCarrick had a fund. Yeah, the, uh, the the fund from which these checks were drawn, it was called the Archbishop Special Fund. Uh, and the Archbishop Special Fund, they describe in this article as, uh, as a little-known account at the Archdiocese of Washington, where McCarrick be- began serving as the Archbishop in 2001. And the Archbishop Special Fund enabled him to raise money from wealthy Catholic donors and to spend it as he chose with little oversight, according to former officials. So, you know, all of this money that uh, the Archbishop was sending out to these popes, and apparently he was also sending funds to people who were, uh, I guess, overseeing some of the, uh, uh, I guess, the cases, the charges that were brought against him. 
So people were donating to this this fund, and and in this this cardinal is is taking their money, and he's he's spending it willy nilly, or well maybe not willy nilly, but he's spending it really to to defend himself against some of the uh, charges of sexual impropriety that were being being brought against him. One thing that was interesting about the uh, the fund is, uh, I guess, apparently according to to the ledgers that were obtained by the Washington Post that show the names of the beneficiaries, um, one of the largest donors to uh, McCarrick was uh, was Marianne Trump Berry. Uh, that's the sister of uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, she was she's a now retired uh, federal appellate judge, and she gave this McCarrick. Uh, at least four hundred fifty thousand dollars over four years, and the story mentions that uh, that Marianne Trump Barry declined comment. There's another interesting comment by another large donor, uh, a gentleman by by the name of Tom Riley. He's the president of the Connolly Foundation, based outside of Philadelphia, and he. Uh, he said in a statement that his group's contributions, that is, from the Connolly Foundation, were meant to help, quote, the poor, the needy, refugees, and the mission of the Catholic Church, end quote. And, and he expressed that he was very sad about this, this whole affair, the fact that, that this guy, this, uh, this uh, archbishop, was, was taking uh, essentially a tithe. I guess he received about $6 million in contributions. He spent about 600000 I guess, uh, trying to bribe people. So maybe that was a, a sort of a personal tithe, or maybe that was his, his agent's percentage or something. I, I don't know. But anyway, he, he took some of this money and, and that was given uh, to the Catholic Church by by some of these people for uh, charitable purposes, and he was was using it to uh, uh, to advance his own career. And and really, that's not all that surprising because that's that's how these guys roll. But anyway, that that was just just an example of the sorts of things that, that go on with Rome. I talked about this, as I said, quite a bit on my blog and in different respects in in 2019, and I'm sure I'm going to continue to talk about that in 2020 because again, that's just how these guys roll. Um, you know, one of the things that I've <laughs> about myself over the years is sometimes I'll say, you know, Steve, you've been you've been awfully hard on these uh, these Romanists. I mean, you're just constantly talking about all the, the nefarious doings of, of the Vatican, the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the various officials of the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, maybe I'm just being too hard on these guys. Maybe, uh, you know, no, you know, <laughs> what ends up happening is I'll come across a story like this and it, and it just, it slaps me in the face and it, it tells me, number one, I've been right all along about these guys. And if, if I have made any kind of mistake at all, it's because I, I haven't been hard enough on them. You know, whatever, however harshly I denounce the Roman Catholic Church, they always manage to exceed my <laughs> to exceed my expectations when it comes to doing evil. I mean, these guys are just uh, really, uh, really amazing in in the way they handle things. So, anyway, this is uh, this just happens to be the latest scandal, and of course, it's very, very difficult to try to keep track of all of this stuff. But I do the best that I can. I read this stuff so you don't have to. That's my service to you. So anyway, that's just some of what's going on with uh, with issues related to uh, to faith, and of course, there's much more that could be said, but I don't want to spend the next two hours here talking about that. Uh, another major theme, of course, um, in in my blog is is the issue of politics. Now, I have you know when I talk about my my uh, blog, looks look at my <laughs> looks look at blog, looks look at um, can't even talk this morning. Um, one of the things I, I've always been fascinated about is politics. I, I remember this goes back even way, way back when I was uh, 
even fairly young, I, I used to kind of get geeked on politics. And I think the thing that really attracted me to politics, uh, and this kind of goes back in the late 70s and early 80s, is because I would start reading these magazines, some of these news magazines, and they there were all these problems that were occurring. You know, again, this is late 70s, early 80s, with a lot of the welfare programs that were begun under uh, President Johnson, you know, the Great Society back in the, the mid to late 60s. I mean, the U.S. went uh, whole hog on the, you know, in, into the welfare state. And there were lots of high ideals. And, oh, we're going to create all these programs. And we're going to have this war on poverty. And, you know, we're going to bring, you know, take all these people who are living in poverty and, and you know, make them all into, you know, I don't know, respectable citizens uh, or what have you. And, you know, the, the reason is, is because they just, you know, they, they, you know, there just isn't enough government help out there. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna you know build all these houses, and we're gonna give them all these money, and you know these these uh, single mothers out there. Well, we're gonna give them give them money, and the more kids they have, the more money we're gonna give them, and everything's just gonna be great, right? Well, in in the you know by the late seventies, I mean the the problems with some of these programs are becoming very obvious, and one of the things that you know you would read these stories and and. and <laughs> It was always interesting reading some of these stories. You know, they they would talk about you know housing and urban development and or or various welfare programs and and how the 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 problems that these programs were supposedly designed to solve not only had the pro, had the problems not gone away, they actually had gotten worse. You know, there was more poverty, there was more um, uh, illegitimacy, there were more children born out of wedlock, there were more single mothers, there was more crime. But you know, da 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 da. You know, on down the line. And, and and you would read these articles and people would discuss, well, why is this? How come how come there's there's more poverty? How come there's more crime after we've instituted all these anti poverty programs and spent, you know, tens, hundreds of billions, I don't know, maybe you know, of course by now it's in the trillions. Uh, but you know, spent these huge sums of money on these programs. Well, you know, you would you would some of these articles they'd talk to somebody who was was maybe a, maybe a liberal and they'd say, Well, you know, the problem is is there just hasn't been enough money and enough authority given to X agency. And if we only would increase the budget and the authority of X agency, why they'd be able to solve all these problems and things would be wonderful and it'd be the Garden of Eden. And then they would talk to someone else, and, and uh, uh, maybe someone maybe you would, would call a conservative, and they'd say, well, you know, what's happened? You know, the reason that you have more crime, more poverty, more of all these uh, negative things out of wedlock births and collapse in marriage rate and what have you, they'd say, well, the reason you have that is because these government programs incentivize bad behavior. You know, the, the more uh, children that a, a woman has uh, outside of marriage, the more money she gets. And... You know that that tended to make a lot of sense to me, but I, I wasn't, I, I didn't have a uh, a solid understanding of uh, of scripture, and how that would apply. And one of the things, one of the real strong sort of uh, desires that I have when I when I write my blog is I want to apply uh, the Bible to all of life. Now. As you, you've probably known, if, noticed if you've, you've read my blog or maybe even listened to some of the prior podcasts, I am a scripturalist. Uh, scripturalism is the name that John Robbins gave to Gordon Clark's philosophy. And if you wanted to, say, put, you know, you say, well, what is scripturalism? Well, if you wanted to put that into a nutshell, probably the best way to describe it that I've heard is this, and, and that is, this is something that John Robbins said. He said, the Bible has a systematic monopoly on truth. 
You know, scripturalism is the idea that the Bible has a systematic monopoly on truth. And, and what that means is that the Christianity, it, it's, it's, it's more than what a lot of people think it is. You know, we tend to be trained as, even as, say, Bible-believing Protestants, we tend to be trained that, okay, you know, you go to church on Sundays and you, you need to have the Bible because you find out about God and Jesus and sin and, and uh, how to get saved, you know, how, you know, justification by belief alone, you know, we, we hear these things. And this is all great, and, and these are all good things. I'm not here to argue with any of that. that that's all true. But then we say to ourselves, okay, when I get out the other six days of the week and I have to deal with life's problems, you know, and, you know, and I see the news and I see about wars and rumors of wars and economic crises and, and uh, political problems of this, that, and the other thing, we tend to say, oh, well, you know, if, if I want to find out about economics, well, I better go read some secular economist. Or if I want to find out about politics, you know, I need to go find out the, the latest thing that, that so-and-so said or the latest thing that someone wrote in, a, in his latest column, you know, maybe some, some secular thinker or what, what have you. And we don't tend to make a connection between the teachings of Scripture and things such as politics and economics. And I would, would argue, you know, going back to that premise that you know, that scripturalism, that the Bible has a systematic monopoly on truth, if we want to solve the very obvious political problems that we have in the United States uh, or in, in the West, maybe more broadly speaking, those answers are going to be found in the scriptures. And one of the things that, that I, I try to do, and this is something that has been consistent since I've been writing that blog for over, uh, over 10, uh, 10 years now, going on 11 years, it'll be 11 years in March, um, is is to bring that idea that the Bible has a systematic monopoly on truth, and to bring the light of Scripture to issues related to politics and and to economics. That's one of the things that I've I've really wanted to do, and and I hope to to continue to do that um, over the next year. Yeah, and you, when you talk about politics, I think one of the things that's really disturbing. Uh, that really kind of came to a head in 2018 or 2019, and really in 2018, is is the attacks that continued on attacks on the First Amendment. Um, you know, in the First Amendment here, I'm, I'm thinking particularly in the ability, uh, the the uh, the free speech clause. Now, that's one of the things that we have here in the United States is we still have uh, First Amendment protections. We're still allowed to speak and discuss and to challenge and to argue uh, as we wish. But there are people that are trying very hard to restrict that. Uh, one of the very obvious examples of that is what's going on in big tech. And I'm thinking here of, uh, for instance, Facebook and, and Google and, and YouTube. And, and the very obvious program that they have to try to... Uh, essentially shut down anybody who doesn't agree with the mainstream media. And there's been a lot of very disturbing examples of that over the past few years. Probably one of the most uh, obvious ones was in late 2018, when simultaneously, uh, you know, Alex Jones and Infowars were banned from pretty much all of the, the major tech platforms overnight. 
This was in, uh, I believe, early August of 2018. And I wrote about a six-part series on it at the time. And, of course, things haven't gotten any better in the intervening roughly year and a half. Uh, it's, it's still the same. And in fact, it's gotten worse. There are many, many channels that uh, YouTube channels uh, and, and what have you that have been shut down, that have been just disappeared because you know, these people challenged ideas that, uh, that the mainstream you know, that the establishment does not like. Now, of course, one of the things that, that people will argue about is they're saying, well, you know, these are, these are private companies and they're acting as private companies and therefore um, they have a right to do what they do. But there are at least a couple of problems with that line of argument. And, and just from a high level, one of them is that a lot of these big tech companies are, are in bed with the government. I can think, for example, um, there are some stories that were put out, and again, this goes back about a year and a half, of Facebook hiring a, uh, a, a group associated with the Atlantic Council to, uh, to vet the, uh, uh, the news uh, that was put out on on Facebook. So, who's the Atlantic Council? You may say. Well, the Atlantic Council is a think. It's a Washington D.C. based think tank that's affiliated with NATO. So, you know, of course, NATO is funded by, in part, by the uh, by the United States and and by other um, other entities. But the, I think the United States uh, government certainly is is the federal government is is the biggest funder of that. Uh, and so the you know the Atlantic Council is really representing the views of the ruling class. Well, you know the the Atlantic Council where they they have this this, this cyber unit that's, that's helping Facebook vet its news. Well, you know <laughs> you know very obviously you know they're going to try to get rid of say people who come along and challenge uh, some of the uh, the globalist assumptions that that undergird uh, NATO and, and the the people and the the organizations that that support NATO. Um. So I mean that's that's one thing you know it's it's really I, I think a lot of this censorship in big tech is really just a uh, it's an attempt by the establishment to do an end around the First Amendment. I mean the government can't come out and say oh well you can't discuss that you can't say that uh, this sort of thing, but if they can work with in conjunction with some of these major uh, tech companies these big tech companies they can do that and they can kind of do it behind the background in a way that's sneaky that most people don't realize and i'm just giving you one example of that here's another issue that where where there's a problem with this argument that uh, that uh, big tech that's just private companies doing what they want there was legislation passed a few years ago and i don't have handy with me the exact uh, name of that legislation but this goes back when the the internet really started to get big, it's, I think it's been within the last ten years or so. But Congress gave these big tech companies immunity from lawsuits, and the reason is is because the way the law was written is they said that these big tech companies again I'm talking here about you know Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, you know the the, the places that you've heard of that these big tech companies were not responsible for the content that was put out there. In other words, basically they served as a platform. Now, if you or I maybe went out and say we put out a slanderous post on, on Facebook or something on Twitter, um, you know, that was, you know, that, that slandered somebody, you know, we could be held responsible for that because, you know, we're the ones that, that are, are, putting these, these say slanderous ideas out there, but Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and what have you, they would be immune from that because their, their defense, because they, they were protected by this law. 
because they were just a platform. They say, okay, we're making this available to people and people can put out there what they want. Now, now, if you happen to put out there something that's, say, false or slanderous or, you know, libelous, uh, maybe something that, uh, you know, you're encouraging people to do illegal things, something like that. Yes, you can be held responsible for that as an individual. But as a platform, they were not responsible for those things. They were given immunity to that. You say, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, but here's the thing. When you're a platform, what that means is you don't curate content. In other words, if you're a platform, you don't say, oh, you know, we're going to, um, we're going to boost the, the uh, post of people whose views we agree with, and we're going to shadow ban or, or delete the channels of people with, uh, with, with whom we, we disagree. Because once you get into to curating content, you've become a publisher, and publishers can be sued. And it's interesting that, that nobody, you know, I, I've, I've read this from several, um, several commentators. I, I'm not a lawyer, and so I, I'm having to go a little bit based on, on some things that I've read. But the argument, the argument along these lines actually seems pretty, uh, pretty sound to me. Um, you know, and these, these big tech companies have really opened themselves up to being sued for, um, uh, for, for, their, uh, for their curation. And it seems to me that they can also be held responsible for the content that's um, that's put out there, and, and yet nobody has really gone after them—at least not yet. And now maybe that will happen. Um, but yeah, the uh, the censorship of uh, uh, you know the the attacks on the First Amendment have been very serious. Another uh, area where attacks on the First Amendment, the attacks on free speech, have come from, have been uh, is actually the Israel lobby. And it's amazing some of the work that the uh, the Israel lobby has done to shut down free speech, to shut down discussion, to shut down criticism of Israel. Now, it, my my stance on Israel is that it's a foreign country, and that it's not something you know that that uh, Americans have any responsibility to be involved with. But the problem is, is due to partisans of Israel, and I'm speaking here principally of uh, a lot of Zionist Jewish organizations, as well as these um, uh, dispensationalist evangelicals, have gotten us involved neck deep in the politics of the Middle East. And what's happened is you've had some people pushing back uh, on uh, on the activities of Israel, you know, some of these uh, Palestinian organizations. And again, I'm not here to pick sides between the Palestinians and the Israelis. But what I, I am certainly in favor of is a free discussion. And if somebody wants to criticize Israel, they have every right to do so. Uh, Donald Trump signed a, an executive order at the end of, uh, of 2019 where he effectively the executive order removes... Uh, or threatens to remove federal funding of universities that allow essentially allow criticism of Israel. So it's really an attempt to shut down free speech, free discussion on the nation's campuses, which is, of course, one of the big things, one of the reasons universities exist in the first place, is for people to be able to discuss ideas. You know, I'm not even here again. I'm not trying to argue for or against Zionism, for or against what's going on with, with the Palestinians. I think there's uh, certainly some things that can be said about that. But my main point here is simply the fact that people have a right to discuss this. People have a right to disagree, and they have a right to openly express that. Um, you know, and, of course, one of the other problems with, um, with the, uh, the Trump 
executive order is a fact that highlights uh, there's that old saying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. You know, it raises the question, of course, why is the federal government funding universities in the first place? I don't see any provision for that in the Constitution. So maybe we ought to really be taking a look at that as well. Uh, but I, I think that that's probably not something that's going to go away at least at least any time in the uh, the immediate future. But I think it's a it's a good question to raise because you know, again, if you look at at what the Bible has to say, the Bible gives very limited um, authority to the to the civil government. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, about that. You know, in Romans chapter thirteen, I think Peter also says something very similar to this. But the idea behind government, behind the uh, the civil government, is that it's to, to punish evildoers, you know, not evil thinkers, you know, there, there aren't to be thought crimes, it says, you know, those who practice evil, you know, those people who do evil, those people who steal, those people who murder, those people who, who do things uh, to harm their, uh, to harm their neighbor. Um, but it doesn't say anything there about thought police. And the other thing is to praise the good, you know, which is generally taken to be, and when you talk about what does praise the good mean, well, it, it means that they need to pass laws that are in, uh, in accord with, with the law of God. Uh, and of course, that's, <laughs> that's a whole other area where in, in the United States we have major problems. Probably the most obvious example of that is, is the, uh, the uh, decision by the Supreme Court in 2015 to... Um, to allow gay marriage uh, throughout uh, same-sex marriage throughout the United States. You know, and of course, now we have a major Democrat uh, candidate, Pete Buttigieg, um, who's uh, openly homosexual and uh, is, is openly uh, uh, gay married, uh, same-sex married to, uh, to a man. And, and that's an extraordinary thing to watch. I mean, that, that is a level of perversity, um, a level of moral depravity that, yeah, honestly, I, I never thought that I'd see that. I mean, I'm I'm going to be 54 this year, so I know I'm kind of an old an old fuddy duddy. But you know, I never thought that I would live to see the day where you would have a a same sex married presidential candidate. But I mean, this is this is what we have, and and at least as things are going right now, it seems like there's going to be more and more of it. Uh, I, I don't think this is something that's going to go away uh, probably this year. Um, uh, we can pray that. Uh, uh, that the Lord would be merciful to us, and that we could get uh, get laws that were uh, in accord with the Word of God. But right now, we seem to be moving in the exact opposite direction. So again, this is something that that I have commented on uh, in my blog from time to time, and, and no doubt that I will uh, here in the new year, of course, because you know we do have a as I said, we do have this presidential election here in 2020, and Pete put a judge is right in the middle of that. I just saw some article where he. He had raised, I think, in the fourth quarter of 2019, something like $24 million, which is a pretty good haul. And uh, some of the other candidates I've seen have had their fundraising fall off. I think uh, Elizabeth Warren, but uh, but Pete, but a judge, you know, he's uh, he's charging right ahead, and and I think he's going to be in there for the long haul. Uh, that's that's not a good thing. Uh, and speaking of Elizabeth Warren, I guess we, we can talk about that too. Uh, I haven't written, I wrote a little bit about that this past year, and I know I wrote about this some back in 2016, but of course, you know, we're getting, in, in her, we're getting the monstrous regiment. You know, you, <laughs> you know we think back about what uh, what uh, uh, John Knox wrote. He wrote that famous, that famous essay. Uh, in fact, it's one of my 
I think maybe it's quite possibly the most politically incorrect essay that's ever been written, but it was written back in, I think, what, the 1550s? It's called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. And in that piece, he was objecting to the idea of a female monarch. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, was, uh, was, the, uh, was the queen at the time. She was the first, I believe she was the first female monarch of, uh, of, uh, of Great Britain. And, and, and uh, Knox came out, and he was very much against that, and rightfully so. You know, the, the Bible does not, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you look at the scriptures, I don't think that you can make a case for uh, for women running the country, and that's really something I need to go back and explore. I hope to be able to do that uh, a little bit more here in 2020 because I think it is a pressing issue. You know, Elizabeth Warren is just one example of of this sort of thing. I mean, she's uh, there are a number of uh, high profile female candidates on the Democratic side, and even this past year, uh, or excuse me, back in 2016, there was some prominent. Uh, there was at least one prominent uh, female Republican candidate. I think it was uh, Fiorini. I think was her name. And I think in this next election, uh, I'm ta- when I say the next election, I'm actually talking about 2024. I think you're going to see a lot more of that on the Republican side as well. One of the people that they're grooming to run for president is this, uh, uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, she's former governor of South Carolina, former uh, ambassador, U S ambassador to the United nations. They're very much going to try to push her as a, as a, as a major candidate. That is a huge mistake. Uh, she's got major problems, uh, with just her, her policies. So that's one objection, but no, actually I do object to her uh, even, because of the fact that she is a woman. Now, I do not believe it's appropriate to have a female president. And I don't believe the Christians, I mean, if you look at the scriptures, I believe you can deduce from the scriptures that it is improper for Christians to support such a person. I know that's probably controversial, and there are probably a lot of Christians out there that disagree with that. So I'd be interested to know your opinion if you have one on that. But the uh, I am firmly convinced that the scriptures do not allow for that sort of thing. And that's not something that Christians ought to be supporting. A third area that I wrote about quite a bit this past year was, of course, the economics. And, you know, economics, is, you know, that's another area that I've had a lot of interest in. And not just economics in, in general, but even uh, specifically just talking about uh, investing, financial markets, that type of thing. One of the big themes that I think we can take away from 2019, and I wrote about this a little bit uh, in my blog, and I think one of the big themes from 2019 is the fact that we don't have real financial markets. Nothing is real. There's a a fellow that I follow, uh, Gregory Manorino. He's a a YouTuber. Uh, He's actually a a trader, and he does a trader. He trades stocks, not a trader, by the way. (laughs) He's not a trader. He's a trader. Uh, someone he he trades uh, trade stocks. He's a short term trader. And he calls himself a swing trader, uh, is the term that he used for his particular technique. But he always uh, five days a week he has a market commentary. He usually does a commentary typically before the market opens and then after the uh, the market has closed for the day. And he'll always one of the things he likes to say a lot is nothing is real, nothing is real. And and and, he, and what he means by that is that the financial markets in the United States are all manipulated. Now, there are some markets that are manipulated up. There are other markets that are artificially suppressed. 
the the favored markets obviously the ones that are manipulated up you know you see the the stock market just keeps going up and up and up you know the bond market keeps going up and up and up you have housing that keeps going up and up and up uh, crude oil is supported you know these are the favored markets of the uh, of the establishment and they're they're pumped up in a number of ways they're pumped up uh, principally substantially by federal reserve money printing uh, quantitative easing. We do have another round of quantitative easing, although the Federal, the Federal Reserve insists we don't have quantitative easing, but we do. Um, there are a number of things that, that the Fed does to support markets, including continuing to lower interest rates. That also is stock market positive. And then you have a lot of propaganda that's out there as well. For instance, Donald Trump, and this is one of the things that I very much disagree with Donald Trump on, is he's constantly out there tweeting, number one, about how great the economy is, and number two, about how we need even more money printing, lower interest rates, and that we need, in fact, negative interest rates. Uh, he's actually come out and, and essentially called, uh, in, in very plain language, for negative interest rates and for quantitative easing. And these are extraordinary things. I, I'm just absolutely dumbfounded by by some of the statements that I've heard, not just out of Donald Trump, but out of other uh, administrators and officials regarding the uh, financial markets. I think what's going on here, it seems to me fairly obvious that what you're looking at is an attempt by Donald Trump to make sure that the stock markets stay elevated through the election season. So elections what's November, early November of, of 2020. So we've got about 10 months to go. And the Trump administration is going to pull out all the stops to make sure that those markets stay elevated. Now, on one hand, I don't want to see an economic crash. You know, I don't want to see a stock market crash. But the fact is we have bogus markets. We have fake markets. We have a fake financial system. And again, this there's a lot more that could be said about this than what I could probably possibly fit into a single podcast. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of economic flim flam out there. Some about it, some I did talk about this past year. And I'm sure that I will be commenting on that here in the, uh, the coming year as well. But again, you know, talking about, you know, applying the scriptures to, to politics, talking about applying scriptures to economics. You know, these are things that it, it's a, Really, I consider it sort of my mission, I guess, if you will, for my for my blogging, for my podcasting, is to bring that commentary to you as a reader, to you as a listener, and that's something that I pray that that I I have been successful at, and that I, I will continue to be successful at. So anyway, my promise to you is to be more consistent in my podcasting. We're getting on to about forty five minutes here, so I think I'd like to go ahead and wrap it up. But I just wanted to say, you know, thank you very much for listening and for for reading uh, my the blog over the past year. And I look forward to being able to serve you here in, in the new year. Uh, my goal here is to at least do one podcast a week. So Lord willing, that's, that's something that I'm going to get done here in 2020. Until next time, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's word. 